Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we are getting the best bits from Collapse by Jared Diamond, How Societies Choose to Fail or Survive. Jared Diamond is a historian. His, uh, his most well-known book, Guns, Germs and Steel, won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, do you remember what that one was, mate? One of our other books did that. Yeah, Lessons of History. Yeah. And uh, yeah, best book in the world of that year. Uh, and uh, this one is all about going back through time, looking at ancient civilizations, which ones survived, which ones failed, and taking a few of those lessons and applying them to some modern societies as well. So, there's ancient ruins all over the world and lurking behind each one, there's always a mystery and a nagging thought. What the hell happened to them and might such a fate eventually happen to us? Will it someday people will be looking at the New York Towers and uh, within Melbourne and all our skyscrapers and be thinking the same thing, that it's just an ancient relic of a previous civilization. So, he goes through some ancient civilizations. We're going to look at Easter Island. We're going to look at the Mayan civilization. We're going to look at the Vikings. And then we're going to look at some modern civilizations as well, looking at China and Australia. And over all of these different things, he's captured like a five-point framework, which goes a long way to explaining some of these collapses. So, one of them is environmental damage. So, this could be exceptional imprudence of the people or exceptional fragility in some aspects of the environment or some combination of the two. Either the environment was fragile and or people stuffed it up. There's also climate change. So, today we're always referring to it as uh, being human-induced. But in the past, over a long enough time frame, there's really natural climate change also putting pressures on civilizations. A third contributing factor could be hostile neighbors. So, relationships where there might have been some kind of uh, hostility between neighboring factions or warring factions where other people might come in and destroy your civilization. The fourth point is all about decreasing support by friendly neighbors. So, everyone around the world right now is trading like previous civilizations have. But sometimes your friendly neighbors will stop trading with you for uh, who knows what kind of reasons, but that trade might be the critical thing holding up your whole entire economy and the health of your society. And the fifth factor of this framework is the response of the society. So, once things start to take a turn for the worse, what does society do to try to pull themselves out or do they take actions that actually accelerate the collapse? So, through the rest of this episode, the stories we're going to be talking about of the collapse of different societies, they're always going to be related to at least one of these factors. The first of the past societies that we want to analyze, its collapse was Easter Island. If you're familiar with Easter Island, I'm sure the first thing that comes to mind is those massive human statues. If you haven't seen them before, it's definitely worth a quick Google image search. These are ginormous things. They're up to 30 feet tall. They're up to 90 tons in weight. But of course, this is over a thousand years ago when there was no cranes, no wheels, no machinery, no big tools, no draft animals on this small island. All it was was human muscle power to create these enormous stone statues and then to erect them to standing upright. So, so a big question, I guess, is how on earth did all of this happen so long ago with so little tools at their disposal? So, if you look at Easter Island today, there's not a hell of a lot going on, but there's definitely evidence of a really complex society in the past who put together these wild statues. So, there's a scattered distribution of their resources with stone quarry in the east end and stone making tools in the southwest and a beach for fishing in the northwest and farmland 
in the south. So all these different parts of it must have been trading together to create this complex society. So if we're looking at it today and it's this poor barren landscape with a whole bunch of statues and there's evidence of this thriving society in the past, what the hell happened? What archaeologists have discovered was they believe the island was divided up into about 12 different territories and for each of the different territories belonged a different group that contributed something different to the island. So of these 12 different territories with 12 different groups, I mean, there's going to be 12 different leaders. And uh, if you look back through human history, whenever there are so many different types of groups in such a small area, there's going to be some tensions. And what we started to see was that throughout time, the statues seemed to be getting larger and larger and heavier and heavier, and they even started putting more decorative features on them. Like, not, not only was it just this 30-foot-tall statue of a, of a person's face, they also whacked something on top, like a headdress on top, which was another 12-ton block of stone to put all the way on top of that 30-foot-tall human statue. So, we're starting to see these statues get more and more elaborate. And what Jared Diamond suspects is that, well, if there was 12 different groups and they're all sort of using these big symbols as a representation of how strong their group is, it becomes a, a bit of a, um, what do you call it, a bit of a, a measuring competition uh, <laughs> as, to, as to see who's got the biggest statue. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And it's uh, analogous to a lot of things today, uh, like you were getting out there. But also, you know, if you drive through Hollywood living in Los Angeles, I was there not long ago. But everyone's displaying their wealth and power by building even larger, more elaborate, more essential houses just to show that they've got more resources to build more and more shit. So even if it's quite pointless to you know the your, your survival, a lot of resources being diverted into this in this area. And so as part of this, you know, making bigger and bigger statues, it requires uh, an enormous investment because there are no horses to drag the statues around. All it is is humans and human muscle power to do this. So, of course, while people are making these statues and trying to drag these things all the way across the island to their territory to stand them up, it takes a lot of energy, which takes a lot of uh, resources. And so, these these people are going to be eating a lot of food. They're going to be taking a lot of resources out of the land in order to make these massive statues. So, not only food, but you also need really thick, long rope made from fibrous tree bark. So, 50 to say 500 people could drag these statues. It also needed a lot of big, strong trees to obtain the timber needed for the sleds and all these ladders and the lever to lift that 12-ton stone on top of those, on top of the biggest statues. So, this is what it needed. But if you look at it today, again, it's just a treeless island in the middle of Polynesia. So, where are the trees required to provide this rope and this timber that would have been required? So, looking at Easter Island today, there's, is there no, there's like no trees on there. But it's clear that there had to be trees at some point if we're assuming that, you know, you need these big uh, fibrous trees to make these long ropes to drag these big stones around. But not only that, they also found a lot of dolphin bones on the island. And these dolphin bones, in order to get a dolphin, they're way off the coast. So, in order to get out to these dolphins, you need a big canoe. And in order to get a big canoe, you need a big tree to carve it out. So, uh, Diamond is saying that by finding these dolphin bones on the island, it proves that you needed to have big trees at some point in time on the island, even though there are none there today. So, it's clear they use a lot of wood and timber in the past and there's nothing there today. So, they did go through a huge period of rapid deforestation to get to where they are today. So, what Diamond says, this actually happened after the first humans arrived on AD 900 
and would have been complete by 1722. So from that time, it was a tropical forest with a lot of resources to a completely barren landscape that we see today. So some of the immediate consequences of this major deforestation was things like a loss of raw materials, a loss of wild-caught food, and decreased crop yields. So because these raw materials are disappearing and a lot of the native plants are disappearing, this is also home to things like birds and other other animals that they could catch and eat on the island. So once the trees are gone, so too are the birds. So the lack of this large timber would have brought the end to a lot of things and one of them was the erection of these large bloody statues and uh, all those seagoing canoes where they were able to go out and get those huge lovely dolphins that would have provided a lot of their food. In 1650, so toward the end, Easter's inhabitants were reduced to burning herbs, grasses and sugarcane scrapes and other crops for the waste for fuel. So they had a very poor fuel source now as well because they had removed all the trees on the island. And so the funny thing now is that these statues, which used to represent growth and power and wealth, people started getting pissed off of these statues because they started to realize that well, we've sacrificed all these trees and all our food sources in order to have the energy as well as the resources in order to make these statues. So people are getting pissed off. These statues used to be a symbol of wealth. Now they're a symbol of everything that pretty much ruined their whole society. They started tipping these bad boys over and thinking, well, this is it. Let's destroy these statues. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you hear stories of your grandpa just having wild dolphin meat and living living the good life and <laughs> you're just looking at this bloody statue, and which is much worse at this stage toward the end. While your grandpa was eating dolphin, the people in 1680, they had to resort to cannibalism. So they started eating humans and this was a, an explosive growth after 1650 and all the chickens and all the other animals went to zero. So you got to think, what is the dude who's chopped down this last tree thinking to himself? You know, formerly having an island full of trees to now having looking on the horizon and seeing nothing but, uh, you know, tree stumps and thinking that this is the last tree here. And the dude who's chopping it down, what's he thinking to himself? Yeah, is it like modern society? They might have been saying jobs, not trees. Or it might be the technology in the future is going to solve our problems and never fear. We're going to find a substitute for wood one day. Or there might have been some people on the island saying, oh, there's no proof that there's no other trees on the island. You're full of shit. Uh, we, need, we need more research. Your proposed banning on logging is premature and, dro- and driven by fear-mongering and, and so forth. It could be what they're thinking. It's very much, uh, it, it echoes perhaps some sentiments today that seem to be uh, pervasive throughout history as well. It also reminds me of the Lorax, you know, where they're chopping down all, all the trees uh, and it gets to the last tree and they chop it down and what happens next? And obviously the end of end of this once all the trees are gone the island has completely changed over the course of 800 years you know before humans getting there it was completely different to 800 years later Uh, i suppose at least i've got those few statues there so in the five point framework we started off with it's obviously human environmental impacts especially deforestation and destruction of bird populations also but also uh, political social and religious factors behind the impacts like the focus on serious statue consumption and using a lot of the island's resources to just build something that just is kind of useless uh, to a thriving society. So listening to this story, it's probably the most chilling because there's a lot of parallels between Easter Island and what the modern world has at the moment. So thanks to international trade and jet planes, it is kind of analogous to the 12 different states that were part of the one island. So all our countries on earth were, sh- were sharing the same resources just like Easter Island's dozen clans. 
And when they got into shit, there was nowhere to flee, no one to turn to for help. And quite similar to us on Earth, we've got no one to turn to in terms of getting some help. Or not that we know of anyway. So Easter Island wasn't the only island in Polynesia. There was hundreds of islands, but Jared Diamond has a little case study on three islands which had evidence of a lot of trade between AD 1000 and AD 1450. So we've got these three islands that are somewhat close to each other, but are quite secluded from the rest of the world. So we've got the Pitcairn Islands, the Henderson Island, and we've got Mangareva Island. And what they found was that each of these three islands had uh, different strengths, but also different weaknesses, of course. So one of the islands had uh, a lot of hard stone and metal for tools. One of the islands had tall trees, which they were able to then cut down and use for things like canoes. And then one of the islands had some wild pigs, they had some turtles close to shore, and they had banana trees growing. So, of course, if... uh, if you were just living on one of these islands, it wouldn't be good. But if all three islands can work together, they can all benefit from each other's resources. They can share things around. You get the best of the best of all three. So we heard about what happened at Easter Island when it came to the timber and the trees. Very similar thing with Pitcairn, who had all the trees which they built for canoes and they traded with the other islands. So once they went through the deforestation as well, obviously the canoes stopped, therefore the trade stopped. And if we think about poor Mangareva Island, they had some very valuable materials in metal for the tools for trade with the other three islands. But all of a sudden, if there's no canoes, then there's metal means nothing because you can't trade it for any other valuable thing like food to eat. As poor Mangareva Islanders, uh, they've got this valuable metal. They can make all these amazing tools, but they're stuck over there with no food and uh, previously, they had this access to this trade. They could tap into the resources of the other islands, but due to no fault of their own, because the Pitcairn Islanders went too hard and chopped down too many trees, they've uh, unfortunately really broken what was quite a collaborative and fruitful exchange between the three islands. Once trade stops, all three islands became somewhat isolated, and all they were left with was what they had on their own island. Yes, yeah, so when it was previously trading for pigs, metal for pigs, what they had on their own island was just your other fellow human neighbours. <laughs> so a bit like Easter Island, again, it resorted to a bit of cannibalism <laughs> where humans became the main, one of the major f- uh, f- uh, food sources. So this ties into the fourth aspect of Diamond's five-point framework that we laid out at the start, and that's decreasing support from friendly neighbours. So things were all rosy, everything was going well when all of the neighbours were able to work together, but once that support started to disappear things got very bad for all three islanders. Not just the one islanders that had sort of over-abused their own resources, it actually had impacts on all of the other islands together. So the analogy for today is the importance of the global supply chain. If one part of it collapses, then the whole supply chain could fall down. I don't think we're as fragile as those three islands, but uh, it is worth the analogy for what we have today. The next story we're looking at is the Great Maya Civilization and their subsequent collapse. So it's one of the best tourist destinations around the world. There's millions of people each year. They're pretty cool ruins. I haven't been there, but there's huge temples and great monuments, and they still lie surrounded by jungle far from current human settlement. So here are the remains of a cultivated Polish and quite an interesting people, very different to us, but they passed through all the stages incident in the rise and fall of nations they went through a serious golden age then after that they perished and vanished from uh, history 
A big part of this story circles around agriculture. If you look at the USA today and most of the the Western world or the first world today, farmers make up about 2% of the population. And with a very small number of the population, we can produce enough food to service the whole world. Whereas if you look back to the times of the Maya, when there were just one civilization looking after themselves with obviously less advanced techniques, about 30% of the population were farmers or were responsible for working the land and uh, growing crops for people to eat. Their climate in the Maya area was really humid. It made it difficult to store corn beyond a year. So they had no animal transport. They just had human porters who had to travel around. And if you sent a porter to go out there, they had to carry their own food to eat on the way there and eat on the way back. So there's only a limited distance that they could actually travel to. So as you said, food was at the core of their human needs, uh, well beyond that we could even conceive of today. So from around AD 250 onwards, the Maya population was growing, uh, the number of monuments and buildings were growing, it was increasing exponentially. And this big growth of the civilization reached its peak in around 800 AD. So about a bit over halfway through this in 650 AD, people started to spread out because there was so much population growth, they started to occupy the hills and the slopes. So previously, this was all the, the farming land and what they're doing now is about 41% of the population was living on the hills and the slopes. So there's the upward slope and then by 1250, the great civilization, there was actually no one left at all. So, you know, we know this because we can see the pollen from the forest trees that grew all over the valleys that the, the Maya used to be in. So what the hell happened? So they had this huge arc upwards where they had the great civilization and then they went all the way back down to zero and this is known as the classic Maya collapse. So some of the problems that researchers and historians and archaeologists have found, one was that somewhere around 760 AD, which is obviously towards the end of their big growth phase, was what they say is probably the worst drought in the previous 7,000 years. So that was a, obviously an environmental thing that was completely outside of their control, but a, the worst drought in 7,000 years is going to have some pretty serious impacts on your agriculture. It appears that population growth also outstripped the available resources. So at the very beginning, when they were on the way up, the farmers were in very productive land. And then as the population grew, some of the farmers who were 30% of the population had to go to unproductive land, which they used up and abused up really quickly. So all of a sudden, the same population had to be supported by what was previously the only productive land. So this obviously resulted in a lot of increased fighting. So as more and more people fought over the fewer resources that were being produced by the original farmers, uh, Maya warfare really peaked just before the collapse because of all of this. So you've got these two things colliding at, I guess, the worst possible time. You've got the population growth. You've got people fighting over uh, different parts of land, which are more or less productive. And then combine that with the drought that comes in at almost the worst time possible. It's really a, a recipe for disaster. Yeah, if you had the climate change, the natural climate change and the drought, but without the population, you've probably got a bit more resilience and anti-fragility within society because you can just move around a little bit. But with the huge population, all the spaces in the whole area are full. So you've lost all the resilience that you have for the big um, smack-ups that nature can throw at you. So looking at our five-point framework, the one that really destroyed the Maya more than anything was climate change. And obviously today we refer to it as human-induced, but, but in this case, over about 
you know, a thousand years, it was natural climate change. So the environment that the first Mayans occupied was very different to those toward the end of that period. The next story we're looking at is the Vikings and specifically the Norse Vikings who shared land with uh, the Inuit all the way up north in Greenland. And the Vikings had a serious period of rapid expansion. So the first ones, they did a bit of trade with the other countries like England and whatnot, but then they came back and then these ambitious younger brothers saw that they were getting all this gold through this trade and they thought, why are you trading all that stuff? Let's just go out there and just put a sword through their head and steal all their gold that way. And that's exactly what they did. So they had a, a rapid expansion from their raids starting in June 793. And it begun with the raid on the defenseless monastery off England's northeast coast. If you've seen Vikings and Ragnar Lothbrook, and that's exactly what happens there in that beautiful TV show. But this continued every summer for a very long time until they ended up really everywhere around that part of the world. And once they'd got a taste of some of the riches and spoils that can come from expanding and going to a new land and taking what they have, they thought, well, let's just keep going. Let's see what else is out there and started to expand all over the world. And they got to Iceland and they got to Greenland. Uh, I think you said in the book there that the name Greenland was uh, basically the first thing they got there. There was You saw there was nothing there. It wasn't green. It was covered in ice, but he called it Greenland to encourage more people to come over. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. It's, it's good marketing. Yeah, it's great marketing. <laughs> yeah. So when they got to Greenland, there's also obviously the Inuit there and they've been there for a very long time occupying the north in these very cold landscapes. But the Vikings rocked up and the soil looked absolutely incredible for agriculture. It had never been logged and never been grazed and it seemed very suitable for pasture. But whilst it appeared the same, it was actually quite different. It looked good, but it was something that could be exploited very easily. So after you do agriculture the first few times, the land quickly degrades in a very fast way. So the Vikings ended up damaging their whole environment here in three ways. They destroyed the natural vegetation, there was soil erosion, and they cut all the turf that was around for the insulation on their houses. If you contrast that with the Inuit and how they survived, rather than going the Viking style of getting wood and turf, they went for things that were plentiful like ice and they built these igloos. And they also tapped into things like rather than burning wood for heat, they were able to use blubber from seals and whales that they'd caught as for their heating methods. So we see two very different ways of living on this harsh landscape. We see the Inuit way who'd been there for a while and they'd learned some of the tricks of the trade. And you contrast that, you see the Vikings that are trying to do it the way that they used to always do it back in the homeland and finding that it wasn't the same doing it in Greenland. So they could have learned a hell of a lot from the Inuit Right? If they're using turf for their insulation, they realize that it disintegrates and needs to be redone every few decades. Compare that to the Inuit with the hell of a lot of ice that actually provided the right amount of insulation. So they would have had a much better chance of surviving this period if they actually learned from the Inuit, but they chose not to. It's almost like they perhaps viewed them as you know, a different group. They're weird. They're doing gross stuff. For one example, Diamond says the Vikings probably didn't eat fish or seals or whales. So the Inuit are out there, they're able to catch some of these things and eat them. But you see the Vikings, they're eating the cows and sheep and goats and milk and meat that they brought over. So it's almost like there was two different ways of doing things and the Vikings probably looked down on these gross Inuits who are eating whales and seals and stuff and thinking, oh, well, we're happy sitting over here eating our juicy, delicious cows and sheep instead. 
So much like the Easter Islander who chopped down the last tree, you might be thinking, who? what about the farmer who killed their last cow? And what was going through their minds? You know, just down the road and beyond the mountain there, the Inuit were feasting on whales and seals and everything. But this farmer chose to kill their very last cow that really destroyed the hope of survival in the future. And there's also evidence of they started eating all their dogs and everything. So again, they exploited all the resources that they chose to eat that was around them. So the Vikings, they didn't enter Greenland with a blank slate of their mind and understand that the Inuit had adapted and evolved for thousands of years to really master this land. They came in with their own cultural prejudices that were the things that actually, the, the things that destroyed them. So it's the values that which people cling most stubbornly under inappropriate conditions are the values that other things that kill us and a lot of the time these same values were the ones that made us triumph and that's why we actually cling to them for so so long yeah there's obviously a lot of ego and and hubris there to think that you're doing it the right way and they're doing it the wrong way if you're bringing over your method of doing things and not being open and not thinking well these guys are doing all right as well there's a definitely a lot of ego there and that boils into the fifth of the five elements of jared's framework uh the response of the society so Different societies respond differently to similar problems. And as you see, the Inuits, they responded well to their environment. The Vikings didn't. There's a good analogy today, I think, with eating insects, which is something that a lot of cultures in the past have eaten historically. So things like beetles, caterpillars, bees, wasps, and ants. And they're a very nutritious, healthy, and sustainable food source. But our culture now, including myself, there's no way I'm going to start eating bees or ants like that. And it doesn't matter how much better it's going to make the planet. I'm probably still going to stick to a chicken palmer. So we've discussed some of the ancient civilizations that have collapsed in the past. We talked about the Easter Island, some of the Polynesian islands, the Mayan Empire and the Vikings. Now Jared Diamond takes us into the next part of the book, which is all about looking at some of the modern societies around the world and using his five-part framework to dive a little deeper as to having a look at potentially what could go wrong for future for the future of these civilizations. And the first one we're going to look at is China. China being the world's most populous country with about 1.3, 1.4 billion people. And as a, as a result of such an enormous civilization, it has the world's highest production of steel, cement, aquacultured food, TV sets, the highest production of coal, fertilizers, tobacco, electricity, motor vehicles, and the highest consumption of timber. Obviously, it goes without saying that China is an absolute giant. The thing about China is it's that big that its problems, its environmental problems won't just affect China, but it can really just spill on to the rest of the world. If we look at the cost of the damage in China itself currently from its environmental damages, it costs $72 million per year to curved the spread of a single weed called the alligator weed that was introduced from Brazil. The losses from crops and forests due to acid rain is about $730 million per year. They spend about $7 billion per year due to losses from the alligator weed. Uh, the annual direct losses due to desertification is $42 billion. And the annual losses due to water and air pollution is $54 billion. So the combination of the last two adds up to 14% of China's GDP. So they're expending a huge proportion of their resources and money just simply maintaining the damages to the environment that they're actually causing. So all those costs are contained within China. And remember, China's not consuming as much as we are in the first world. 
what Diamond says, if China's per capita consumption meets what we have in the US and within Australia and so forth, the whole world's production would increase by about 94%. So basically, a doubling is on the table if China reaches our style of living, and this is something that they're striving to go for. So the rest of the world, we're all going through this process, but China more so than anyone. It's the race between accelerating environmental damage and accelerating environmental protection and shedding off more and more GDP to just maintain the increasing costs of environmental damage. So looking back at Jared Diamond's framework, there's obviously an enormous, enormous uh, environmental damage, which was the first of his five points. Just by all of this production and consumption, we're going to see impacts not only in China, because it's not like the Easter Island, how there was just contained to that island when they chopped down the trees. This environmental damage could spill over to affect the whole world. And another one of the five-point frameworks is the potential for the decreased support from friendly neighbors. We're seeing at the moment there's a, uh, a lot of uh, hostilities and potential trade wars as a result, as well as the, the fifth point of his framework, which is the response of the society. If they're increasing their consumption because they want to be like the, like the Western world, then we're going to see these massive, massive impacts, not only on China, but on the, on the whole world. The next modern society we want to look to is a lot closer to home. In fact, it is home. It's Australia. And he talks a lot about Australia and in particular, the agriculture and the farming in Australia. So Australia, we've got a a hell of a lot of farms uh, and it seems like we're almost a a society built on on farming. But the first thing you think of when you think of Australia is like a dry desert, water shortages. We seem to always be in drought. It seems like it doesn't rain enough. But Jared Diamond says the thing that we don't hear about a lot is that the Australian soil actually isn't that productive in the first place. The soil has the lowest average nutrient levels in the in the Western world. The plant growth rates are extremely low. There's a lot of low productivity. And this is largely due to the fact that Australia is super, super old and that all of these nutrients have been leached out over billions of years. Uh, from all the rainfall and all the use of the land. He says that the oldest surviving rocks in Earth's crust are actually in Australia that are 4 billion years old. So we've got issues with our soils, but also uh, when it comes to rainfall, we've got really high unpredictability from what's called the El Nino Southern Oscillation. basically means it's just unpredictable from year to year and even more unpredictable from decade to decade. So the one way you can overcome this unpredictability is to obviously build dams And this is something that we did in a very big way to uh, overcome the shortage of water that inevitably we have to hit every now and then. Starting in the 1930s, they installed dams and weirs in the river system. And so that was partially to do with, you know, building a weir in the town means that you're decreasing the risk of flooding and obviously wiping out all the people that are living in those towns. Uh, It also means that you're storing water for the people in the towns, but you're also storing water for farming and things like that. So in theory, this is pretty good, uh, but in practice, it actually had the exact opposite effect. What it meant that less flooding was was bad for both the soil and the river. So previously, every now and then, just as as natural causes, 
the rivers would swell, the rivers would flood, the soil would get uh, water spread all over it, and also the river, once it went back down to normal levels, would suck up some of the nutrients to sustain the river. But now that the flooding stops, the river has turned from this uh, living, flowing thing to just a still, almost like a still body of water that doesn't get topped up every now and then with nutrients. So this is just one example where we solve one problem by building the dam, but we've caused a whole lot of other problems where our soil was already not very productive. It's even less productive when floods come to uh, replenish the, the nutrients in the soils. So what this means is really high cost when it comes to fertilizer and fuel. We need to spend a whole bunch of money to get a viable crop and uh, it basically just doesn't give us enough juice back. And this is why it's much cheaper for us to grow oranges or for Brazilians to grow oranges internationally and just ship it rather than just make our own oranges here, which is kind of bizarre. There are other issues when it comes to fragility uh, and a lot of these are largely caused by humans and you know trying to solve some issues and instead causing other ones. So we cleared a lot of the native vegetation. There's Once we brought sheep over, the overgrazing by sheep with their big heavy hooves uh, churning up the ground leading to soil erosion. The introduction of rabbits has completely fucked everything basically. Uh, we're seeing this nutrient exhaustion, we're seeing soil erosion, we're seeing salinization where the topsoil is becoming salty and thus not fertile. Uh, and really the whole uh, industry is becoming very, very fragile as a result of some of these issues. Your rabbits is a really weird one. They're cute little furry animals, but I got a stark hit of reality that they're a pest when I was about 13 years old and we used to go on school camp and we used to go rabbit hunting with the teachers and would find, we'd get in the car and chase them down and try and run them over, which is kind of brutal if you think about any other animal. But uh, yeah, because it's a rabbit and a pest, you're allowed to kill, <laughs> to kill as many as you want in, in Australia. It doesn't matter how cute they are. Kangaroos and emus, even though they're on our coat of arms and these two native animals are also pests that uh, you can run over. Yeah, chase down, <laughs> chase down, and and run over. So these pests, they might have been great ideas at the time that we introduced, but there's over three thousand plant species that are considered weeds in Australia that were brought in, and they're causing two billion dollars of losses per year from these decisions that we made at the very start. It also costs a few hundred million dollars a year to get the rabbits under control. It costs us six hundred million dollars for the flies and ticks of livestock. $200 million a year for pasture mite, $2.5 billion for other insects and pests, and as I said, over $3 billion for weeds. So that's a whole bunch of money. I wasn't aware that we're spending so much uh, just to maintain these environmental damages from our own decisions. So if we're looking back to Jared Diamond's five-point framework, clearly there's a lot of environmental impacts on this. So the human activity, the constant plowing of the fields and turning over the topsoil, combine that with the grazing of sheep and the rabbits is leading to a hell of a lot of uh, soil damage, which is uh, going to be very hard to reverse. And also the response to society is another big part of that framework where we did things that we thought were going to fix it. We introduced other species to try and control the insects, or we introduced a dam to try to fix, to try to stop the river from flooding, and these have had negative effects and it could be a, a source of collapse in the future. So the final section of the book is practical lessons. So this is a chapter why some societies make disastrous decisions. So what Jared Diamond says is that when he first presented these. Uh, stories and these lessons as lectures at, uh, I believe he's at UCLA, the 
most questions he got was basically why on earth did this happen? You know, what were the people thinking when they were chopping down the last tree or killing their last cow? Or how did these people let this collapse happen? So he puts them into four different reasons. The first thing that might happen is people may do disastrous things because they fail to anticipate the problem before it arrives. Basically, they've got no prior experience of these problems when they, when they come. You could call that a black swan, I guess. An unpredictable, unforeseen, something that just pops up and has a big negative impact. So a big prime example is when Britain came over to Australia and they brought with them foxes and rabbits to Australia. Effectively, these were completely alien species. They, there was nothing like it in Australia before, and they found that these foxes actually preyed on a lot of the Australian native animals. Or another one, the Maya, they couldn't foresee that the deforestation of the hill slopes would trigger soil erosion from the slopes and would mean that they'd have to go back and um, get the food from the original productive lands like we were talking about earlier. All these things were completely unknown before they made these decisions to go down this path. And they also might fail to anticipate it from just using the wrong analogy. So when we're dealing with these new situations, we're normally drawing from our previous experience from old uh, situations. So remember the Vikings, the land that they previously used for agriculture was from England and it was much more productive. And then they came to Iceland and they just assumed that it would be the same. And very quickly, they used up and, and ruined the soil that would have been you know, important for their ongoing survival. Diamond says, Generals often plan for a, a coming war as if it will be like the previous war, especially if the previous war was one in which their side was victorious. Mm. So that's the first big reason that some of these disastrous collapses occurred is that the problem wasn't foreseen. They didn't anticipate the problem before it came. The second big problem is that, you know, whether they anticipated or not, a problem's arrived and the next issue is that they failed to perceive it once it's here. So the first one was that they didn't even expect it coming. The second one is that, look, there's a problem here and they don't even recognize that it's a problem. So some things are really imperceptible, like the nutrients responsible for soil fertility are invisible to the eye and only in modern times you can really get it and measure it by chemical analysis. So there's no way for first settlers to understand the uh, degradation of soils. Another one is the distance of managers. So Diamond relates it here back to like a company where you've got the managers at the top who have got no idea with what's going down at the, I guess, the real world level. And if you look back to an ancient civilization, that might be where you've got a king who's secluded away in his castle with all his gold and jewels and he's got no idea about what's happening to the farmers out in the field. And perhaps the commonest way you'll fail to perceive the problem when it arrives is so there might be a trend concealed by wild up and down fluctuations. And the term here he uses is creeping normalcy. So it refers to slow trends concealed with noisy fluctuations. So a topical example is global warming. So the climate might be fluctuating up and down wildly from year to year, but it's actually going on a slow trend upwards. And because someday it might be extremely cold and, you know, people will go out there and be like, uh, laugh at the people who are alarmist for, about global warming because it's a cold day. And that's because the trend is concealed between these fluctuations. And this is what happened with the, the Maya society. They were unable to perceive the natural climate change that was happening and their climate getting drier and drier and drier through this wild drought that they had to endure. Another term is landscape amnesia. That's another way that we miss these problems or once a problem's arrived, we don't perceive it as a problem 
because what this landscape amnesia is, is we can sort of only see as far as a horizon and the horizon being our own past knowledge. We don't really know what it was actually like 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So we can't compare what's happening now to what, what it was like in the past. Like if you think about the Easter Islanders, I'm sure there weren't too many you know, 50-year-old Easter Islanders rolling around, but they wouldn't have realized, hang on, before we had like, you know, half of this island was covered in trees, now only 40% is covered in trees. You can't really see these things uh, from a day-to-day level. It's such a, a gradual change that we forget what it was actually like back in the past. Yeah, that person who chopped that last tree down, they would have experienced their lifetime on the island of not many trees at all on it. So it wouldn't have been such a big deal just chopping one single tree on a landscape that's already completely barren. The third reason why we fail to deal with these changes is societies often fail even to attempt to solve a problem once it's been perceived. There's a whole bunch of activity which scientists might call rational behavior. And rational behavior is things that can be sort of clearly explained and that employs correct reasoning, even though it may be morally reprehensible. So one way of saying this rational behavior is, hey, I did something that was good for me, but it was bad for everything else. You could call this rational. You could probably call this selfish as well. But that's like the the guy who's hungry, he chops down a tree, makes a canoe, can go out and swim out and get some fish or a dolphin. Uh, and that's good for him. But if it's the last tree left, that's very bad for everybody else. Yeah, that person who chops the tree gets the big certain immediate profits of going out there to hunt that big seal. But then the losses spread over a large number of individuals over a very long period of time. So that gives the losers who are losing a tiny bit, very little motivation to go out there and fight back against that dude who's chopping down that tree because each loses only a tiny amount and not enough for you to be motivated to stop that person. A couple of other things that tie into why societies may fail to attempt to solve a problem. One is that the principal decision makers at the time, they don't really have a long-term stake in preserving the resources. So the Viking who's eating that last cow, he's pretty hungry right now. He doesn't really have a long-term stake to ensure that there are cows in the next 100 years. And another big problem arises is when the interests of the decision-making elite, the people that are in power, when their interests clash with the interests of the rest of society. Obviously, the king or the, the leader of this area wants to build bigger and bigger statues because his interest is in showing off his wealth and his power. But that those interests do not align with the interests of the rest of society. And the fourth way us humans might stuff it up with our decisions is even if the society successfully anticipates and tries to solve the problem, the problem might be just beyond our capacity to solve it. It's just a bit too difficult to, to solve. Yeah, the problem might be beyond our current capabilities or by the time we realize it, our efforts might be too little too late. Perhaps a solution exists, but it's too expensive or too difficult to do at the time. Or, of course, there might be uh, an attempted solution that we try to do, but it backfires entirely. So I think it's a very important book. They always say we can learn through history and through this book, it does give us a five-point framework where we can get the lessons of failed societies in the past and apply it to some of the issues that we're going through in the present. 